Hello and welcome to InsureTech Insider episode 110. I'm Nigel Walsh. In today's episode, we're going to talk to you about new insurance products in this space with a focus on how the landscape has changed since the start of the new decade. We'll cover the scene so far, the good, the bad and the ugly, their success and what the future holds. And as always, I'm not alone. I'm joined by a panel of amazing guests and today from all around the world. First up, I'm joined by my co-host, John Bean, Client Director and Insurance Lead for 11FS. Hey, John. Very well, Nigel. Um, nice to see everyone on the call and looking forward to a great podcast. Fantastic. Likewise, likewise. Next up, we're joined by Andrew Bates, CEO and co-founder of Safely. So firstly, Andrew, congrats on your partnership with Real-Time Rental. How are you doing today? And can we hear a little bit more about you and Safely? Sure, sure. Um, thank you very much and happy to be here. Uh, what we do at Safely, our whole mission is to help a homeowner feel comfortable with these internet strangers who come into their house through Airbnb, Verbo, Booking.com, because it's really weird to let these people sleep in your bed and use your kitchen and be in your space. So, so what we do at Safely is we make you comfortable with the guest. We do a background check on the guest. We verify their identity. We have a contributory database of bad guests. People who have destroyed homes should never rent again without the right supervision. And then we back that up with a primary commercial insurance policy that's fully embedded into the reservation flow. The guest pays for this. They don't pay a damage deposit. And we have a $0 deductible cover up to a million dollars. But of the commercial liability that the guest faces, the homeowner faces or the property manager faces. So now you're comfortable letting internet strangers into your house. Internet, I've never been called an internet stranger, but okay, I'm, I'm comfortable. I like the idea as well. So we're going to hear loads more about that later on. That sounds awesome. Alongside Andrew, we've also Jules Vera, CEO and co-founder of Stoic. Uh, again, congratulations on your exciting $4.3 million seed round. How are you doing today? And can you tell me a bit more about you and Stoic? Thanks a lot for inviting me. Really happy to be here and sorry about my French accent. Um, well, I built Stoic a, a year ago with the idea of helping SME leaders get released from the fear of cyber attacks. Um, many SMEs are attacked and a lot of um, SME leaders know that can be, they can be attacked, but they don't do anything to prevent them, their company from being attacked. What we have, are doing with Stoic is that we've built an insurance product uh, that covers the company in the event of an attack. But apart from the insurance, we are a cybersecurity company and we are building cybersecurity tools that we give for free to the company so that the company has more for the same price and so that we can better assess the risk of the companies. Fantastic. We're looking forward to digging more into that as well. I mean, we've touched on two of the hot topics so far that our, our decade has seen. And last, but by no means least, InsureTech Insider debut for Rachel Jenkins, EVP at FounderShield. How are you doing today, Rachel? And tell us a little bit more about you and FounderShield. Awesome, awesome. I'm doing really well today. And thank you again for having me on today. Just a little bit about myself and FounderShield. I uh, cut my teeth at, at AIG and, and Marsh. Uh, so, you know, have a, a lot of experience in kind of that big bulge bracket uh, carrier and, and brokerage side. Um, you know, after a number of years, I really wanted to find out ways how to kind of leverage technology to improve the insurance procurement uh, process, which brings us to FounderShield, uh, where I have been uh, a part of the customer success team and, and now leading it uh, after five years. Uh, FounderShield is basically a, a full service retail brokerage, uh, meaning we can help with every 
possible kind of line of business. Uh, but really where our value add is, is we've been able to kind of leverage technology to enhance and streamline uh, the commercial insurance process. We have a, a, a platform that's built in-house uh, where we hold all of that uh, renewal information uh, and everything can be automated and online. Uh, we specialize in high growth companies um, all the way from C to you know publicly listing. Most of the companies that we work with operate in, in complex industries like micromobility, health tech, uh, blockchain, crypto, and you know in the insure tech space. But we do uh, service traditional risks as well. Wow, that is a mouthful. I think you have to get the awards from me personally, being a complete utter Marvel geek, that you have the coolest name with Foundership. I just think Captain America, but let's leave him out of this and his amazing body for this episode as a starting pretend. Let's get started with the conversation in that case. Um, and let's start talking about the insure tech landscape and how it looks like and how it's evolved from the start of the new decade in 2020. John, do you want to start us off here? I mean, how do, in your opinion, how has it changed over the last two years, I think our team here today have actually given us a little clue into some of the cool new things that just didn't exist a couple of years back. But yeah, you start us, start us off. Yes, very much so. I think you know we've we've experienced a lot of change over the last couple of years. Um, I'd argue primarily because of the global pandemic that started at the beginning of 2020 and had a huge ripple effect on the industry, well, every industry in reality, but certainly for insurance, it brought it into the limelight, uh, which is both good and bad. Depends if you were covered or not, or maybe if you thought you were. It got customers also looking at what they were getting and paying for for their policies. Uh, so what did it do? It certainly forced people online. I think there was about an 80% upturn in online activities across the board that also exposed significant gaps in customer experience. Uh, so that's something that needs to be addressed by the insurance industry. Equally, it brought people to work at home, and that included call center staff. Uh, and I just want to emphasize that you know, for years... Uh, it was told it couldn't be done. Uh, it was too complex. Um, and then in a matter of weeks, people made it happen. And that was huge for the industry. People also had to go online to sell products in the life industry, online screening, uh, medical screening, which was huge. So you can see there's been a, a real plethora of online activity and, and actually forced digitization. This generates a lot of new products or certainly new risks. So we're going to talk a lot today about cyber I think cyber was already there for a couple of years ago, but it's just going to grow and grow and grow. So in addition to online, we've seen a real explosion of, of real-time data sets. This is working its way into every aspect of the insurance value chain, whether it be new products, telematics, driven or sensor driven. I think that can only be a good thing for personalization and actually more appropriately based risk products. On top of that, uh, ECG, COP26 was the flavor of the month. That will start to bring about new products and actually new ancillary value and services, which we'll see over the course of the period. But that's where I think we've got to. So over to the rest of us. Now, now you say accelerated, and I have this debate all the time about have we just got faster at digitizing the old world? And Rachel talked about some of these things that are now all online and all these things that we can do now that we should have always been able to do but never really got to. Or have we actually reimagined things in a different way? And maybe, Andrew, I can come to you. You've been in this space for quite a while. How would you describe the acceleration of innovation in the market? And back to your point about internet strangers and stuff, this is the launch of new products that we didn't really need multiple years ago. They're all brand new, right? Right. I, I think a few things have happened. And, and we were lucky. You know, when we started, we got to be digital first. You know, no paper forms, 
everything's digital. So this, you, when we go to and see service providers, they're like, oh, we can digitize all this. It's like, well, we just built it like that. So it works. I think what digitization has done is it's allowed us to look at new types of risk. So we're looking at a whole different type of risk that didn't exist before. You know, we have consumers like regular people who are now acting as businesses. And the only way to really ensure these individuals who have a side hustle, renting their house, delivering you know, groceries to your house, whatever it is, the only way to you insure them with the right commercial insurance in real time is through digitization, you know, embedding into the transaction, these one-off transactions where now I'm a I'm an entrepreneur and now I'm a, a civilian and switching between that, you need the digitization to make that even possible. And that's that's what we took advantage of. The fact that your home is now a commercial entity for these four days and then it's not. You don't need insurance when it's not. That you don't need the commercial insurance when it's not, but you need it when it is. And and without these digital distribution channels, digital bookings, e-commerce, all of these trends that have been happening over the last two decades, you, our insurance product could not exist. It's really interesting. I think you know everyone's talked about the pandemic and the changes that we're, that we're here. I was looking around the city here over the weekend and just hearing how demand has peaked and dropped and peaked again over time has made me really think that without insurance, we couldn't make any of this sort of stuff possible. We haven't been able to uh, almost allow us to balance out those peaks and flows accordingly, which I find really interesting. But I I guess like in all of these things, whether it was, uh, I saw Buckle's announcement of new people joining this week, I saw Collective in the UK, all supporting the gig and the sharing economy. There are lots of really, really cool things going on that are allowing us to almost normalize some of these peaks and troughs over time, which I, I really, really like. And as you say, they weren't here a few years ago. I guess the other thing here is uh, back in November 2021, our good friend Andrew Johnson and the quarterly InsurTech report for Willis uh, talked about the capital invested in InsurTech surpassed the $10 billion mark for the first time in any one year on record. And we thought, I think probably a year before that, we thought it can't keep growing at this rate. It's just got crazy. And I think it's just it just keeps going. I mean, um, Rachel, maybe one for you. Do you... Is this something that you think we can keep growing? Will the trends still be there? Will we going to keep seeing more and more money pile in? Will people want their money back at some point and see some returns? Or what do you see? Yeah, no, I mean, we we look at this increase in capital um, across all you know types of industries kind of every day. That's our, our bread and butter. It's where we were founded. Um, I think insurance was kind of uh, the last frontier. You know, if we look at healthcare, we look at education, um, you know, uh, just, you know, overall gig economy, there have been a lot of uh, new entrants over the past five years, right, that have looked to digitize that space and allow people to access um, those services online electronically, right? Insurance is kind of the old guard. It's it's uh, very traditional. It's hard to move. Um, and I think over the past kind of three years, you saw a lot of different um, in, investors and, uh, you know, capital pushers who, who started to look to insurance. Um, there's always been you know, the innovation and the, and the ideas, there just hasn't been a lot of the capital support. Um, I mean, any one of our panelists can tell you that entering into the insurance space, it comes with regulation, it comes with a lot of uh, a tech spend um, that has to be done. So I think it had been a, a kind of barrier to entry uh, for a lot of investors. And over the past couple of years, they've seen that that this uh, market is, is completely untapped and, and you know, is, is kind of endless to a certain extent it's it's the oldest oldest industry insurance right so the 
Yeah, I'm with you there. I mean, but, but, but the barriers to entry, I think they've just been falling and falling and falling. Oh, Maybe yeah. you've got a perspective. Yeah, okay, because you yes. talked about building technology first. Andrew's mentioned uh, digital first for the platform that they've built. Those, those barriers have made it more accessible than ever before, I guess. Yes, no, I, I, I definitely kind of uh, agree with that. I mean, uh, a good example I would say is is looking back to the 2019 InsureTech convention that you guys had, just looking at the, the smaller InsureTech companies that were there that year and coming back uh, this past year in 2021. I would say more than 50% of those those small kind of incubator companies were able to have their own, you know, area on the floor, right? They they clearly have shown that that the industry in itself has grown tremendously. And I think you kind of touched on uh, where the capital is and, and if, you know, are we hitting a ceiling? Um, I always tell this story about insurance, about uh, these billionaires who were on a, a golf course and they saw these planes that were going by these private planes. The biggest plane it belonged to, you know, the head of Chubb, right? The big billionaires are coming from insurance. And I think people are, are starting to see that that's there. So the, the support is coming in. And, and like you mentioned, the barriers to entry are going down. I mean, it's, it's almost a perfect storm if you put those things together. I will say the report talked also about, and I think we can see this in our everyday interactions by the companies that talk to us, by the requests that we get from the maturity of some of these companies. And actually the dare I say, the great resignation of people that's going from traditional insurers to startups to go and take on new roles, whether it's in claims at Lemonade or chief revenue officer at Buckle or elsewhere. But one of the things I found fascinating, I think the, the evidence is there to support as well, is in the second quarter, more than two thirds of the total capital raised went into just 15 deals. So roughly half the percent of the world's insurtech shared 3.3 billion while the remaining one and a half billion was distributed between another 147. And then funding was zero for the remaining 95%. That's a stark comparison of the haves and have not. So that's also a really, 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 really interesting um, thing to look at. We saw that previously, I think, in the, in the previous year too, where lots of the startups got zero funding, but a very small number got quite a lot. I guess, let me, let me finish on this, if I may. And, um, Jules, I guess the seed round for Stoke, how, what was your experience like as you, as you started to raise the money? How, how would you compare this to, or how, how, I guess, yeah, what was your experience in, in raising money? Well, as you said, it's not that difficult today to raise money if you want to build an insurtech. So we had started the project only two months before we got to see the VCs, and it took us two weeks to raise over $4 million in, um, in seed round. So it was really, really fast. But the main barrier... The one I want to tell about is working with insurance and reinsurance companies. It took us two weeks to raise money, but over eight months to get an agreement with an insurance company and a reinsurance company to launch the product that we want to launch on the market. I understand why uh, we are doing cyber. Cyber is, is tough. Cyber is technical, so it's not easy. But the, the main barrier was this one, not to raise money, not to attract people, as you said once you raise money, you are sexy on the market. People want to, to get to your company and work with us. So it's easy for us to attract people. The main difficulty always is to work with the large um, reinsurance companies, insurance companies. That's really interesting. For those people that obviously can't see the screen that I'm seeing, you would see Rachel and Andrew's head nodding vigorously uh, and smiling at the same time. What, Jules, what's your, what's your advice to either startup founders like yourself or insurance companies to make that process quicker? How do we, how do we go faster or is it not possible? 
uh, it's just a question of finding the good people inside the organizations. Uh, once you find one, you're lucky enough and it can go fast. But but uh, it's always, I mean, we had to go through a ton of uh, compliance, uh, KYC and so on before working with them, even though we had six months of activity. So we were a really small company and we got through the, the main, the full process. Just find a good person and we were lucky enough to find them uh, in the organizations. Yeah, it, it's a fair shout. And I think, you know, you've come back to the, the business of insurance is lovely in that it's surrounded by wonderful people and finding and holding on to that good person or individual team allows you to get anything done no matter where you are, whether you're in a big organization or small. So sound advice, I'd love to work out what that magic key is. I've heard it time and time again about how we go quicker. And, and Nigel, just in terms of hearing that time and time again, is that do you think that's unique to insurance or do you think that's true across other industries? My gut feel is, and I'd love other folks' perspective, my, my gut feel is there's elements of this that are specific to insurance, given the fact we're not selling a can of Coke or a packet of sweets or whatever else. We are in a regulated industry where we are protecting people's lives and livelihoods. So we can't afford to cut corners or anything else that we need to do. We need to put protection in place for a reason, because if if we get it wrong, serious things can happen. People die, uh, people don't get looked after, uh, data escapes, and so much more. So, you know, it's a trust-based industry. So you do have to dot the I's and cross the T's. But I do think always as a, uh, I, I unfortunately have a reputation always about asking, how do we go faster? How do we go faster? How do we go faster? And maybe I was just born impatient. Um, if I was born backwards, it's a whole different conversation. Um, but I wonder how we, I, I do wonder how we go faster as an industry. And I do think there are elements that are installed as a net result of what we do. But there's got to be a faster way. There's got to be a faster way. Um, with that chirpy news, let me move on to the next section. Uh, and this is about the good, the bad and the ugly. Um, so this is about what products exactly have come out since 2020, including, as I said, the good, the bad, the ugly. What are they? What was a success? And of course, what did they fail to deliver? In the past few months alone, we saw some amazing new insurance products and offerings coming up. So we saw Demex, which we had on the show previously, a company behind the first of its kind platform for analyzing, pricing, and transferring climate-linked risks at scale. Uh, Notable, a startup which is building automation systems to help speed up lengthy healthcare admin, and saw the debut and exciting new offerings from SoulSafe Insurance for Sneakers. Now, I think, you know, there's three of them alone. Um, Demex, super interesting because ESG is on everyone's agenda right now. Um, healthcare, again, linked back to where we are and a, a need here and today with things like the pandemic. And finally, as Mr. Breer himself has got so much time on his hands and is buying so many sneakers, he's now got sneaker insurance. So we're literally finding new opportunity the same for vrbo and an airbnb to andrew's point these things didn't exist a couple of years ago and they're now new opportunities that have emerged uh, Rachel, let me start with you if you don't mind what, what have you seen in the in, in the market and what customers and clients are drawn towards most yeah just by nature of, of kind of the space that uh founder shield sits in where we've worked with a lot of complex industries who are our innovators uh in you know whatever the marketplace uh they are in uh we are looking at, at new products all the time and I, you know i kind of want to preface it with that you know you have your traditional suite of products and really where you tend to find new products come out is when those traditional carriers either want too much money for the product 
or they re- they refuse to, to cover it. So um, some of the areas that we've seen are, you know, on the cyber side and the media side. So first on the media side, you know, we've seen a, a significant rise in, in copyright and, and IP related claims coming out of the use of a lot of these media companies uh, with influencers. So we have a product that we partnered uh, with, with uh, Lloyds of London and, and through one of our uh, MGAs uh, that we work with a lot uh, that specifically works with influencers. And so they can get their own product that will protect them individually when it comes to those, those types of claims. Um, more on the hot topic stuff uh, is, the, is the cyber, right? So, you know, I was always taught that cyber was probably the most comprehensive, probably broadest policy um, that you could get on the marketplace. With that being said, with the speed of, of innovation and in, in, uh, how companies are evolving, there's still gaps, you know, there's still areas where people would like to have coverage where they don't. Um, one of the areas that we have seen, um, and, and we have a, a new product that we've been presenting to a lot of different clients with parametrics. So, it's looking at the gap uh, after you have a cloud outage, right? You have a cloud outage with someone like an AWS, and there's a gap in between that first hour and when the insurance policy actually kicks in. And what we found is, as majority of our companies that we worked with said that they're not going to have uh, uh, the the size of the impact uh, is is most felt in those initial kind of 10, 12 hours, right? And that's where they don't have the coverage, right? So. That's a new product um, that we've got a lot of traction with a lot of our clients who rely on cloud-based um, services to uh, operate their own platforms, right? I might be very biased, but I also agree with you that the future is cloud, but I might be biased for a very different reason. So people can have a good old chuckle about that. Uh, John, what about you? Are there any new products that spring to your mind right now? I think, I mean, I think just going back, back a step, I think, first of all, you know, rather than just creating products which we know highly commoditized products which cover a broad set of risks. I think insurers designing products in response to specific customer needs and challenges, which is what everyone on this call has done, which is fantastic. It's what SolSafe did. Um, a great example I came across the other day, a, a Dutch company actually called Vandersat. Uh, so they provide global satellite data for crop status and water availability. Um, and they can do smarter crop insurance. What I liked about this one on the ECG theme was... Um, they cover 100 million hectares, and they can actually drive actionable decisions to help reduce global water and food crisis. I, I just found, I came across that one and thought that was fascinating, both an insurance product and going beyond what we offer as insurance. And it's, it's that kind of additional value add that I really like from insurance products. I love that. And I think where you find new gaps or new opportunities like that, and someone's brought a new product out, it's, it's always really, really exciting. Andrew, what about you? What's uh, what's on your mind in terms of net new stuff, other than your own, of course, that you've seen? I mean, I really believe that everything in life has risk. And if we can create the right distribution channels, the right underwriting models, like you can mitigate the risk associated with everything, stuff we've never thought about ever before. I, I know that's really big and ambiguous. What does that mean? But it's like, Everything we do, crossing the street has risk. Is there a distribution channel, a micro policy that can be attached to that? Don't know, but but really, we need to think a lot more broadly beyond you know auto, home, life, health, you know, in, in the normal categories, and and like just think everything. I, I mean, and next year we'd love to insure the metaverse, like these things that happen, like let's say you buy a pair of shoes in the metaverse, who's going to insure that? You buy a house in the metaverse, there's libel, slander happening uh, there. Someone needs to protect you from that. If the metaverse becomes as real as we think it could, well, 
there's risk there and that needs to be protected. I have no underwriting models. I have I don't even know what this stuff is worth, but it's uh it's next. Well you you almost get back to Jules's point about insurance being slower than you'd like. And in that instance, and again, metaverse is on my list of predictions for the year, you get back to the whole point of well, we haven't got thirty years of loss issue. Well, of course you've got, because the metaverse is literally 18 months old as we know it. So how can you have 30 years lost history? Are you going to wait or are you going to do something brave and go after it? Jules, what about you? Other than uh, what you're up to, have you got anything else that springs to mind in terms of uh, innovative and cool new products? Well, I'm, I'm not the best one to speak up about other products because I'm really specialized in cyber. Um, we define our company as a cyber security company selling insurance rather than an insurance company selling cyber. Uh, which makes a big difference. But that's that's um, one of the answers to your question. Uh, that is to say, uh, with cyber, um, my key belief is that we have an insurance product that can't be sold by um, pure uh, brokers or pure insurance companies because you need a technical background, a technical way of selling it. And I believe it's a nonsense to sell ins- uh, cyber insurance if you don't have the prevention and the security monitoring that you can offer to the company that you're insuring. So that's, I, I feel maybe Rachel, you have a, a different perspective on, on this uh, risk, but that's what I feel is really different with cyber. You need technicity. Yeah, that, that's fair. I mean, my, uh, my ones, and you've touched it a little bit, are around not just the metaverse. I was even reading this morning about the Bored Ape Yacht Company, some, t- uh, some images being stolen because of bad coding, there was 21 billion stolen last year in crypto. There's got to be something around there. You know, Andrew, to your point, there's risk everywhere. I, I, I don't know what's happened to me over the years, but I walk around going, oh, we could do a product for that. We could do a product for that. We could fix this. And it's, you, you, you've almost got to work out to, to Jules's point as well and to your point, how we get that distribution right for those going forward. Let me, um, let me flip it really quickly and then say, are the products out there that fail to meet your expectation that were a great idea at the time, but just didn't live up to it. Who wants to go first in that? John, you're looking very pensive. Um, you know, what? There, there was a there was a product that I I loved, <laughs> and you might tell me why it failed. I, I can never understand what it failed. I used to have a policy called um, I Love Back Me Up, which was from Aegeus. Yeah, and for a fixed fee, you could insure three of your favourite items, or you could get five or seven. But what I loved about it, it was really flexible. So when I was at home, I could insure my bike, my computer. If I went traveling, I could maybe take my camera or my drone or my airport. I thought that was a great product. I, I thought it would do really, really well with sort of generations and generation X, you know, the flexibility. Um, but for some reason, they wound up after a couple of years. And I think it, it collapsed a few years ago. And you might, you might be able to tell me why, but that was a great product. And I couldn't understand why that, that didn't hang around. Well, we'll come back to that. Well, Rachel, what about you? Anything on on, uh, on your list that you go, this is amazing, but it just didn't take off. I don't. I don't really have anything uh, a specific product. I, I think I'll be a little bit more kind of general and kind of go back to Jules' point on uh, the technical aspect when it comes to cyber insurance. Uh, you know, historically there was a lot of capacity. There was a lot of traditional insurers uh, over the past five years who were really eager to get into the cyber market and quote things really cheaply without any controls. And the past two years, um, you know, we've seen a lot of carriers pull their products from the marketplace, um, and and that's a extreme disruption, um, you know, for our clients, right? And you know, on Jules's point, we've seen a critical market shift in terms of of underwriting. Right where it used to be, they would ask just a few questions and you could get a really cheap quote. Now they ask 
20, 30 questions. They'll give you those vendors, you know what I mean, to help you get things in place. Uh, and even with those 30 questions, you're paying significantly more with lots of exclusions and, and tremendously less less coverage, right? So that's kind of what I've, I've been seeing, which is, is a little bit disheartening because, you know, as a broker, you expect that any carrier that you place with has the, the proper um, underwriting um, and compliance in place to handle and weather a, a hard market. Uh, but what we've seen is, is a, across the board, there was, there's been a good number of carriers who had cyber products on the market um, that just weren't set up to handle a hard marketplace. So, yes, m- maybe if I can if I can jump on that point, uh, we were speaking about failures in terms of uh, insurance product, and I feel on cyber there there was one um, in France. The loss ratio of insurance companies on cyber in 2020 was one sixty two percent, so huge. Um, and and why is it? Well, first because the lack of data. Of course, uh, you say that, but it's true for a bunch of products. The main reason for which it is, it is that. Um, cyber attacks are always evolving and they will always evolve. And in two years, the types of attacks that we'll see are not the same as the ones we see today. So it's really hard to, even with data, to predict how much it will cost to a company. Uh, and that's the big challenge that any insurtech or any insurance company needs need to face on cyber. It's almost the how do we get ahead and stay ahead rather than play catch up all the time, right? So it's really interesting. Andrew, what about you? What's, uh, what's been your favorite or your one that's let you down the most? Yeah, what's letting me down the most is um, you know, some insurance or some uh, people selling guarantees versus insurance. So they get around the entire you know, balance sheet issue. Like, why do you use insurance? Because there's trust that there's a balance sheet when you need it. You don't need it all the time. Most of the time you don't need it. No, we're going to call this a guarantee. You read the terms of service as a guarantee. Um, the individual whoever it is, the person who should be insured doesn't really have insurance. It's like, this is a guarantee. We promise we'll help you out, but we're a startup and our balance sheet isn't that strong. So um, probably if it's a big one, we can't help you out. We're going to find a reason it doesn't work. And then we're going to you know, not pay and there's no recourse. And, and that to me is the most frustrating thing. Like our industry is old and stodgy, but it also has the protections, the compliance in the balance sheet and that has a higher cost structure, but that's what people think they're buying. You know, it's, it's a really valid point. I'll finish with uh, two examples very quickly. One personal, one from a friend of mine. My personal one is I've been caught out. I will admit it. My hand is raised. I've been caught out with not reading the T's and C's. And the very basic expectation of a carpet spill being covered has not been covered, even though I've got basic accidental damage. I'm sitting going, Surely, of all things, this is the most basic thing that you would expect to be done or covered. And as a net result, I'm now out of pocket of it and I'm not as happy as I would like to be with insurance because it's not going to pay out and I'm not someone that makes loads of claims. And the same is true for a friend of mine um, whose dog was attacked. And again, it's almost the, the expectation and the purchase of insurance gives you a level of, a, I think I'm covered for these things. And if you then don't go into the 60, 70, 80 pages of T's and C's to read the utmost detail, you don't know what you're covered for or what you are covered for. So I think there's still a gap between, never mind the actual product or net new product, but actually the the thing that we're buying, are we being really clear that we're going to cover you in the event of your dog being attacked or you spilling something in your carpet without going through T's and C's and rules and whatever else to work out, 
you know, if you jumped on one leg and sung hallelujah, did you get it or not? So it just feels like we're still trying to find ways to not make payouts in certain instances or the expectation of what you're buying isn't meeting for you when you actually do need it, which therefore gives you a lack of trust in the in the industry going forward. But look, on my, on my case, more fool me. Of all people, I should have read the T's and C's in a bit more detail and uh, work it out a bit more. But it just... It just feels like I odd. No, I think, you know, I was just going to say, I think that's a really interesting point. You know, we talk about pushing things online and the need for online, but actually there was a spike. We talk about, you know, what's happened over the last couple of years and things have gone online, but there's also been a spike back, people going back to brokers, certainly within SME businesses, because because of business insurance and because of the COVID, they want to be sure that they're covered and that, that, you know, they don't have time to read 60, 70, let alone understand what it's saying. So there is a real balance between the distribution and the online distribution. But to your point, Nigel, how do we be really clear about what you're covered for and what you're not covered for without necessarily always having to go to an expert? Yeah, I just wanted to kind of point out that's exactly kind of the lane that Founder Shield is trying to kind of stay in. It's how do we use technology to enhance and improve the experience, but still be able to provide that white glove communication, that face-to-face. If you want someone who actually can answer your questions and, and ask you what keeps you up at night and let you know if it's covered or not, you know, you kind of still need that that interface. And it's like, how do we find that fine line? you know, between it. You, you're spot on. I, I went out for dinner with a buddy last night who I've not seen for a very, very long time. And when I, said to, when I told him I was in insurance, I literally got abuse after abuse after abuse and then shows of emails to go, look, I've had these 65 emails or whatever it was from my broker about the multiple different policies and it's just a mess. Can someone just consolidate it and tell me what I'm covered for, what's my deductible and what I'm not covered for? So there's almost a communication thing that we've got to address to show you that in a much clearer and simple way that's not going to be 70 emails and 80 pages of t's and c's so there's definitely opportunity to fix what we have today without necessarily launching net new products as well to fill more gaps if all we're going to do is fill them with the same challenges that people are encountering today that that breaks the trust barrier that wraps up that section let's just take a quick break and we'll be back very shortly Decoding is back. Our hit video series returns, and this time we're getting under the skin of banks. Over the course of 11 episodes, we're joined by key industry experts to ask, what are the challenges facing traditional banks in 2022? From payment rails to lending, we lay out the landscape before looking at the problems banks are facing today and what they can do about them. Watch now on the 11FS YouTube channel or at 11FS.com forward slash decoding. Enjoy. Welcome back. Let's get on with the show. So next up is what problems actually need solving. And I think we've already said that wherever we look, there is risk out there. And that means there's opportunity for insurers. Uh, while it's fantastic that innovation keeps going, how many of these solutions are created for problems that actually need solving? And this is almost the innovator's dilemma. And John, I'm definitely coming to you on this one first, because I think we've had loads of good ideas over the years that... Um, should have stayed as ideas and never been pushed into actual products. But do you think there's an abundance of products and offerings in one sector or in the sector, should I say, where others are actually lacking? I think, it's a, I think with most things, it's supply and demand. So if the demand is there, then supply tends to quickly follow. And you know, as companies basically target new customers and growth. So I think what that does cause is often then an overabundance of products in a particular sector where 
where there is there is growth. And what you get is generic products and offerings. And you know we've talked about at length about this about highly commoditized products, not targeting individual customers. So I mean I'd love to see more personalization. Uh, we've talked for years about hyper personalization. So I think I, I would say yeah, it's a supply and demand model at the moment. All right, Rachel, what about you? Yeah, I mean I, I guess I'm going to follow on that, right? The to just kind of circle back what I had said to you earlier, you know, insurance products, they come out of either, you know, usually one or two needs. It's a claims activity or a loss that consumers are experiencing that are not, that's not, you know, covered by insurance or it's, it's a compliance compulsory, you know, um, kind of buy. So looking at to um, the loss aspect of, of, of new products, I think there, there is uh, definitely an abundance um, of products now, is is the are we reaching max market attrition? I'm not sure. I think that you know to kind of go back to what a lot of the other panelists were saying. If if clients if customers are seeing that loss and they're seeing a need, I think you will have that that market adoption. Um, and you know if it's a, a, a need that people don't feel like the cost uh, represents the actual loss, then you're going to see those, those types of products, um, you know, go to die. But at the end of the day, um, you know, everything does have exposure. Everything does have a risk. And if you have that, uh, market adoption of protecting yourself via, you know, insurance as the risk management, um, kind of medium that you use, you'll have uh, a significant more attrition at the end of the day. So it's, it's really, you know, about communicating what the exposure is and, and what you can do um, to mitigate that exposure and finding that that's that right price point to engage um, the consumer. It's really interesting. And, and actually, Jules and Andrew are probably the best place to answer this as well, because I actually think lots of the new products and innovation that come out, let's just talk to, to the, the, the rental protection or indeed the um, or cyber here. These have emerged as a result of the standard policies not covering. So there's gaps in the coverage that has led to new products. So Andrew, I wonder, I wonder what your perspective on this is, because you're creating something that, I mean, you could argue, why don't the standard homeowners or, or home insurance cover these by default? Or why, you know, someone else's exclusion is your opportunity, I guess. And that's it. So whereas I don't think it's entirely supply and demand, I think demand, especially for insure techs, has to be uh, cultivated. Because for us, no one wakes up this morning saying, today's the day I'm buying insurance for my home rental. I mean, right now, a lot of people think, oh, my homeowner's policy, I've got a good policy, I use a good company, I think I'm good, we're good. Oh, maybe the Airbnb policy is going to cover me, like, I'm good. And, and in some cases, you're right. But we have to like convince people they might have a need, then help them understand that we solve the need, and then we take away that risk they had. It's kind of like when LifeLock was starting, uh, you know, over a decade ago, like you didn't know someone could steal your ID. So, so you like, you're watching this TV ad and you're like, oh crap, I didn't know someone could steal my ID. I'm really worried. And then for 40 seconds, you're really worried. And then they give you a solution for $19.95 a month. They'll take care of it. And then it's gone. So like that whole, I didn't know I had a need. I'm really worried. Now I, that needs solved happens in 45 seconds. And you're just back to where you were, except you're out that amount of money every month. It's almost the same here. It's like, there's an education component, there's an awareness component, and then, then they have to buy into our solution. 
And I think that can be the case for a lot of you insure techs. For example, I didn't know about cybersecurity. We work with FounderShield. My person told me, oh, you need cybersecurity. I'm like, oh, yeah, we probably do. And so now we do. And But it was a whole new category for me. I didn't wake up saying, hey, Rachel, can your team help me find cyber insurance? No, you told me I needed it, and I believed you, and now I have it. it, it it's interesting, though, because I think you you've started the highlight for me the whole and people that have listened to this for years will know i go on and on and on about education and unless we can make people aware and educate back to rachel's point about the the value of brokers and what we can bring to the table with people that will help us understand what that risk is we're never gonna we're never gonna know jules i guess the same is true in cyber we hope i mean so people that can't see the screen again jules has done the proper uh, shake the head and, and raise the hand but you it's the same right if unless we can educate people we can't help fill that gap. Well, yes, it is. I, I totally agree with Andrew. There is an awareness battle to be to be uh, led uh, on cyber, and it's really, really an issue because that's the reason why insurance companies lose money at the end of the day because they don't have enough risk and they just carry the bad risk of companies that are risky and protect cover themselves, and therefore at the end of the day. The, there are more claims and not enough premiums to cover the claims. Uh, so that's a big issue in France. You have, or in Europe, you have less than 5% of SMEs covered against cyber attacks, even if most of the attacks are targeted on SMEs. So that's something we are trying to do because I feel like the, the impact of a massive systemic attack on those companies could be huge. And that's why we are uh, raising money and trying to move fast with, with Strike because we feel like uh, there's a huge market to be conquered, of course, but a huge issue for those companies um, really um, that, that could be massive for them. So on the, on the issue of supply and demand, first of all, you've got to educate to create, almost educate to create the demand and then the supply will follow. And it's that education piece which you feel is missing the most. I think everybody agrees on that one. I I could not agree more. I'd actually change the supply and demand to evolution. If we look at the evolution over the last 24 months, again, looking at how people exited London or New York or major metropolitan areas to go to, you know, I've got a bunch of friends that have said, I'm not going to live in the city when it's it's all chaotic. They've gone and rented apartments or houses in Colorado or elsewhere, they've got more space, they're freer. Well, then, of course, they jump into Andrew's world and say, well, actually, we need insurance to cover ourselves for this, you know, this short-term three months that we've decided just to up and go and do something completely different. The same is true for things like um, travel insurance. You know, my wife's trying to book a holiday right now. And one of the first things that she's considering is, what are the COVID restrictions and what are the cancellation policies in the event that we can't actually travel? But you go back 36 months or 24 months, we'd never even even considered that. So I think it's the evolution of the situation that we're in, whether it's increasing cyber attacks, like the crypto stuff we talked about, whether it's us moving around as individuals, or whether the conditions in which we live in, with the health or whatever else it might be, in this this instance, COVID, that are driving opportunity for insurers to put new products in place to solve some of this risk piece. John, I guess maybe maybe one last one for you. Um, do you see certain sectors rise above others? I mean, if we break it down into commercial or complex commercial, SME, personal, health, life, do you see some of those sectors or lines of business more served than others or are they, are they all broadly the same? Oh, that's a good question. Um... That's my job. I'm doing well. I'm, <laughs> I'm getting there. Well, I, I think, look, there's products there that are all served, whether they're served 
for all the needs is, is the question we've just raised. I mean, inherently, I think, you know, insurance is a, is a, is a risk game. And I think people sort of migrate towards the less risky options because that's where the money is. Um, I think, therefore, what you do create is you create pockets of underserved insurance that traditionally would be risky or people perceive them as riskier. But actually, if you can find new ways or better data, there are new opportunities. I mean, Marshmallow was a great one in the UK for migrant drivers. You know, you could argue, did we, you know, car insurance is fully served, but actually migrant drivers was an underserved section. And, and that was particularly because people weren't going after that risk base. So I think every sector is served, but it's finding those niches at the edges of those industries. It's a, it's a, it's a perfect segue to our next conversation, actually. I agree with you, by the way. You know, it's almost the, is auto and motor dying in its current format? Because in the next 10 years, whatever the number is, we're going to move to self-driving or more autonomous vehicles, whether it's level three, four or five, in the same way that we're going to get away from ICE-style vehicles and move to electric vehicles. And I think as each one of these things evolve, we create new opportunities that us as innovators have to help go solve. So that's a, as I said, it's a great segue into our, um, our last and final section, which is what can we expect from the future? So what do we wish the future for insurance looks like? Jules, I'm going to start with you. How does cyber and beyond cyber start to evolve over time? And what sort of things do we need for innovation? On cyber, what I can say is that the evolution is that technical softwares will help us better assess and select the risk. That's it, mostly. If you want to be dynamic, if you want to adapt to the ever-evolving risk that you have with cyber, you need to be able to assess continuously the risk of your companies you want to insure and to adapt the the price of the risk and uh, the coverage that you can afford, that you can give them, depending on what you can assess. So my belief is that you need to build better cybersecurity assessment softwares to better um, sell cyber insurance and to better cover companies you want to insure. So that's uh, my, my belief for the future. In the coming years, every company selling cyber insurance will have cybersecurity softwares apart from the, the insurance product. I love it. I, I love your focus on the insurance, on cyber. Andrew, what about you? What's the, what's the, what do you wish for the future? Yeah, I, I see two trends. And once uh, exactly as Jules was saying, you know, how are you more proactive? Insurance started off, you know, first fire stations were built by insurance companies because they were paying for the damage. So what can you do up front? And we're trying to do that with our risk scores, with adding the right friction when we need to add friction and then decreasing friction into a reservation flow into you arriving at the house or while you're at the house. You, so what can we do? Not just pay for it. Paying is easy. How do we, how are we more proactive and predictive and, and make that the core competence rather than claims? And we're good at claims, but how do we, how do we push our activities uh, up front? And then this, the second piece is just, you know, understanding that people are different today. You, know, how we work, you know, when we're a commercial being in a, a personal, you a consumer and we're switching back and forth all the time you're not just driving to work now i'm working from 8 30 to 9 30 or to 5 30 so now i'm a worker and i need commercial insurance then i'm not a, a worker and how do we like you're using your car differently you're buying a house you're using it differently all your assets are used differently how you spend your time is half side hustle half leisure and figuring out how to how to be on and off you, for everything, not just home sharing, is is 
something I like to see. I love that. The words you, the two words that you use that resonate so well with me, what you, you said earlier was frictionless or friction and embedded. And I think those two things there, even add one more if I may around proactive, take those three things and you start to fundamentally change the nature of risk and insurance as we know it. I'm not sure how we'll get there. Rachel, what about you? Yeah, no, I mean, I'll just kind of piggyback off of what the other um, panelists mentioned, but I think one of the key things is going to be integrating more analytics and technology into carriers' risk assessment and and focusing less on claims, right? Because uh, you guys made up a, a broad, a really good point, right? Like we don't have fifty years to give to build claims history for a lot of these emerging industries and, and innovative companies. We need flexible and reactive products that are uh, priced competitively, right? And to get there, it's going to have to be an analytic you know, avenue. It's going to have to take a, a technological aspect. I work with these complex risks all the time, blockchain, crypto, rideshare, on demand. Uh, and I can tell you, it's extremely difficult to find carriers who are interested in writing on um, the book of business. And it's part education on, on the behalf of their underwriters. And then, you know, the technological, the claims activity, the the analytics to be able to support whatever their underwriting is, they're, they're lacking across the board. That's not slowing down the innovation. There's there's more micromobility rideshare companies today than there were you know three years ago than there were five years ago. It's it's these are all expanding marketplaces that need true insurance policies to be able to respond and not just a piece of paper that costs six figures. You know what I mean? So it's the it's the it's the evolution I talked about earlier. It's how we bring all these things together and meet the world as it as the world evolves. It's never going to sit still, right? John, what about you? What is what's the future of insurance look like for you? I would say exactly what everyone else has said, um, but to think of something new, treating customers fairly. I think we've got an industry that doesn't really trust its customers and the customers don't really trust the providers. You know, I can't tell you the amount of times I've heard organizations say when we've been doing work at them, you know, don't wake up profitable sleeping customers. And, And I just think that's a terrible phrase for an industry that's trying to be more open, more transparent, more honest. And yet at the same time, they're, they're screwing over, you know, their historical customers and, and trying to drive profit. So I just, I'd like to see in everything else that's been mentioned, embedded, et cetera, us actually treating customers fairly, having a bit of trust that goes both ways. And to your point, Nigel, about your carpet, you know, being open about what you're covered for, what you're not covered for, and actually going back to some really first base principles of, you know, protection and what, you know, what we're giving you. So treat customers fairly would be mine. I wonder, maybe, maybe you've just given me an idea. Maybe my policy should say something like the lines of, Nigel, you're entitled to claim for whatever the hell you want up to a certain amount for things that you thought might be covered. And then if they're not, then we'll put them in. Because you've got to price it in next year regardless. And if I've not made a claim for five years, then does that make me a bad customer? I don't think it does. It's almost back to the, the point Andrew made between warranty and insurance and ultimately the two getting a little bit, uh, a little bit mixed up. Um, let me, let, I know we've only got a few minutes left. Let me finish on this one. As we enter... I'm going to say 2022, but we're kind of February. It's like, oh my God, we're straight into it. Um, as we're entering this year, what do we hope the insurance industry will leave behind as we close out the year in December this at the end of the year? So obviously, Jules, you're going to want every SME to have cyber insurance. Is there anything else that you would like to say 
you've achieved at the end of the year from an innovation and new product perspective? No, you said it. I want to raise the figure I told you 5% to 10% or 20%. Uh, that's the key element I want. And of course, we are working on many new technical devices that can help companies mitigate their risk as we insure them. Uh, that's what we want to, to do. Like, for example, testing the um, reaction to phishing campaigns inside the companies to see how well prepared they are, they are to phishing. Uh, that's something we want to do in the coming years. But in terms of insurance, that's what we want to, to accomplish. And, and while I've got you, what's your advice to startups entering the market this year, given that you're fresh out of raising, fresh out of eight months of working with an insurance company and reinsurance company? What would your advice be? I'm a man with very little hair, but you've got lots of hair. So you've actually got through it with stress-free. So, <laughs> so how did you get through it stress-free? What was your advice? Well, my, my biggest advice is that uh, there are tons of money on the market. So take the money and run. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should close the show there. Take the money and run. Andrew, what's, what's, your, what's your hope for the end of the year? Is it, is it going to be that our default policy is one with you and we have homeowners after that? I love that. I would love if the traditional carrier selling a homeowner's policy when their their policyholders come to them and say, hey, I'm thinking about renting on Airbnb. Can you help me out? Help me here. That they don't get dropped. And instead, the, the carrier says, oh, I've got the perfect policy. Keep your policy. We've got safely. It'll bolt right on. And now you don't have to drop your customers and their 2.2 policies they have with you. We're here to cover all of your risk. And we appreciate We want you to monetize this risk. We want you to, to do really well. That That's my my dream. I love it. Rachel, what about you? Uh, I'm, I'm like Jules, very excited at the, the increase of, of cyber control adoption and use of analytics and, and that sort of thing in sub cyber underwriting. And I'm also very excited about newer products that are, like you said, more frictionless. You have this risk, you have this loss, you get paid X, uh, you know, keep it, keep it simple. And I've, I've seen a lot more of products. Uh, on the horizon that are, are keeping that kind of simple motto when it comes to uh, claims payments. So, so remove remove any ambiguity where we can. It's back to the comments that was made earlier around parametric, which I really love, by the way, and I think it's going to just get bigger and bigger because if we can get to rules based, we keep it simple, right? Ultimately, John. Last but by no means least, what's uh, what's your perspective for the end of the year? I'd like uh, really easy, simple, and more affordable solutions at the touch of a button, and a moment when it's at the moment when it's most relevant. So this is this is probably the big the big embedded play. Um, but selling insurance at the moment, point of need, uh, would be mine. Interesting. You know, you know, one thing none of us have mentioned for the entire show, and I'm not going to go into detail, is regulation. None of us have said, look at the the UK market. Regulation has come in, and it's 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 tried to help treat customers fairly. It's compressed what we're doing on the comparison sites and so much more. I wonder where insurers don't self-regulate where the regulation has to come in and help out to solve and, and help treat those customers fairly going forward. But look, fa tr truly fascinating discussion. Uh, for me, I'm a big fan of another French startup that we had on uh, recently. Is it Leanne that tells you whether or not your claim will be approved or not approved? So in the same way that you can go onto a, a credit card application all over the world, put your details in, and before you go through the credit check, it will tell you whether you're going to get it or not. And I think that's a, it's almost a precog to what you can and what you can't do, which I think is quite exciting. More and more like that will help us demystify some of these T's and C's, even for numpties like me. 
Um, with that, that wraps up today's discussion. Thank you all so much for joining us. Uh, where can people find out more about you and your companies? Rachel, let's start with you. Yeah, you can find us on LinkedIn at FounderShield um, or our, our website, FounderShield.com. And if you ever need anything specific, you can always email me, Rachel at FounderShield.com. Fantastic. Jules, where can we find out more about you? You can find me on LinkedIn, Jules Vera, uh, for, with the French accent. And um, you can find us with on stoic.io. Fantastic. Andrew. Yes, we're at safely.com, S-A-F-E-L-Y.com. And I'm Andrew at safely.com. And last but by no means least, John. Uh, the usual spot as always on LinkedIn or uh, 11FS. Fantastic. And you can find me on Twitter at Nigel Walsh, normally giving out about e-scooters. And it's got worse since I've landed in the North Americas. Um, thank you for listening. As always, if you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps to make the show better and it helps others to find the show too. Uh, as always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or InsureTech Insider. Find us on Twitter at InsureTech Insiders or email podcasts at 11FS. A huge thanks as always to Irina, George and the team that produced and put all this together. Thanks very much. Goodbye. <laughs>